real quickly before we turn to the sermon for today. That um, that verse in Philippians it said, "My God says, my God will supply all of your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus." God has a glory realm, and in the glory realm. There are amazing things, including a mansion for you, including riches in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of expression. And when Paul tells the Philippians um, that God is going to provide for them, he doesn't say he's going to provide for them according to anything else except for what's in the riches and glory. There's a glory realm. There's riches in there. He's going to provide for you out of that to give to you. And it's in the context of their supporting the gospel work that that happens. It's consistent with what Jesus says about tithing in favor of it, endorsing of it. It's, it's consistent with what um, Malachi chapter 3 says about tithing prophetically into the New Testament days that uh, he'll open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing we won't be able to contain. I remember when I felt led to, I was teaching school elementary school, and I felt led to drop everything, take my wife and uh, two-year-old daughter, and move up to Bellingham to go to graduate school at University of British Columbia, uh, Regent College, a theological school up there. Just cold turkey, felt led to do it, did it, and didn't have a source of income up there. Thought I might substitute teach up there, but I didn't remember that uh, Western Washington College is there, and they're pumping out dozens and dozens of teachers into the subfield up in Bellingham. So I was like, I got one call to sub in three weeks, and that wasn't going to cut it. So I basically got a minimum wage job as a security guard for mobile oil refinery there. And I supported my family and paid off all my college debts uh, with no debt at the end of the, my master's degree in theology from Regent College. I um, had no college debt. And I tithed on minimum wage, on a minimum wage job the whole way through. And I don't know how that happened, but it happened. There was just a provision of heaven. And that is one of the great memories and joys that I have. I know, I don't know about you felt about your stimulus check, but one of the great things I thought was, oh, good, I can so more, I can tithe off of this into the kingdom and see what God will do. And it's a great way to live with uh, this expectation of um, the, the heaven's windows open for, for a provision of heaven. I just want to remind us about that with tithing, encourage us. So we have just read and spent two weeks on chapter 30, 29 and 30, three weeks on chapter 29 and 30 in the story, the Apostle Paul. And David's going to be preaching on the Apostle Paul uh, today. And uh, next week, we'll be reading chapter 31. We'll have two sermons, uh, one from Jeremiah, one from me, on the uh, end times as we conclude the series on the story, but David has an amazing message for you, and the voice of God, the oracle of God is on his voice, so really enjoy this talk and really hear God's voice in your deepest heart because this is something that's going to be real special for you uh, this morning. Give David a warm welcome as he comes and talks today. David. Good morning, everybody. To make sure this goes right in the blue box here. There we go. Oh, I'm loving this 1030 service. It's so good to see everybody all together. You know, there's a lot that goes into setting up. What's that? What are you, what are you saying? I don't know what you're saying. Song. Oh, the dog. There's a, 
There's a dog in the parking lot. Someone, someone's dog. Okay, all right. I was like, I thought she was saying dog, but I thought she can't be saying dog. Anyway, I forgot my train of thought. What was I talking about? Oh, so get the donuts, get the creamer. It seems like the sound crew has to re restart the settings every single week because the, the building gets used all week. And Jeremiah on the camera has to do the colors because people wear different clothes and it affects the lighting. And we try to make it all, it's like every single week. So the 9.30 service was really testing our Christianity and our devotion. So that extra hour is, is revival. So thank you, Jesus. So uh, I, I was going to ask my dad, what, what was minimum wage security? What was minimum wage in 1982? That's hard to remember that far. <laughs> I don't remember. Okay. That's how long ago that was. I remember... Uh, Getting a raise at the Rogue Valley Manor from five dollars to five fifty in nineteen ninety-nine. Yes. My first job job at working the theater, seventy-five cents. Seventy-five cents an hour. Oh my goodness. But gas costs like twenty-five cents or fifty cents. Yeah, so that helps. Um, I thought that fifty cent raise. Oh my goodness, five fifty. Man, I'm just these. I'm I'm just robbing these people blind. Um, and I was driving through In and Out Burger last night, and I saw. $17 starting pay for some, for some of these people? I thought, you know, gosh, if that goes up much more, you guys not, might not be seeing much more of me here. I might... <laughs> 17 to start out. That's amazing. I'm just kidding. No. But really. Okay. <laughs> so, can you believe that we are on 30 out of 31 chapters in the story? That flew by. So... I can't wait to find out what happens, you know, next week, you know, we, we finally get to the end of the, I hope it's a good ending, do you think, do you think it's going to have a good ending, I guess, we'll, I guess we'll have to wait until next week, I think Jeremiah is preaching, so, oh, I can't wait to find out, it's kind of like getting to the exciting part in the movie, okay, so, but our story picks up today with the Apostle Paul wrapping up his ministry, and it's right when he finishes his third missionary journey, he's traveled around all over the uh, Mediterranean, and now he's being led by the Spirit to go back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit had told him to leave. He said, they're not going to accept your ministry. Um, but now he's being told to go back there. However, the Holy Spirit's very clear with him what's going to happen. He's on his way back to Jerusalem, and a prophet meets him on the way, a guy named with a great name, Agabus. I don't know who names their kid Agabus, but that's what they named him. And he shows up, and he's, he takes Paul's belt, and he wraps his own waist with it, and he says... Uh, so the, as the, I'm bound by this belt, so the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt when he gets there. And, of course, all Paul's companions were like, whoa, Paul, listen to this guy. Don't go back there, because this prophetic word, you're going to get bound in Jerusalem. You know, look what they did to Jesus. And Paul said, you know, I'll, I don't care if I lose my life there. I'm going to do what God told me to do. So this is Paul being Paul. He's going to go back. And so it's funny to me. The Holy Spirit tells him to go there, but also tells him this is what's going to happen. But he goes back. So in Jerusalem, he gets arrested, as he knew was going to happen, and he gets falsely accused. And someone accuses him of bringing Gentiles into the inner court, which you're not supposed to do, and a riot starts. There's a riot in the city of Jerusalem. And Paul being Paul, what do you think he wants to do with this riot? Do you want to try to run away from it? No, he wants to stand up and start talking to the, whole, to the angry crowd, of course. And so he tells them, 
about his Damascus Road experience. He testifies. He doesn't try to preach theology at them. He just tells them what happened. I saw Jesus. I was walking to Damascus trying to kill Christians, and he appeared to me. And they listen. Kind of amazing. But then he tells them what Jesus told him. Uh, Acts 22, 18, God told him, this is years earlier, leave Jerusalem immediately. They will not accept your testimony about me. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the crowd freaks out. Pretty much they prove God's prediction right by freaking out when Paul tells them, God said you're not going to accept my testimony. And they immediately reject his testimony. And they're like, how dare you say we're going to reject your testimony? You know, and they try to kill him for saying that. Kind of like you see the irony there, but somehow it just went right over their heads. I guess mobs aren't very good at irony. So Paul ends up in front of his old buddies, the Sanhedrin. He used to be one of these, one of these people, and now he's in front of them. And they're there to condemn him. You know, somebody strikes him on the face. It's not a, it's not a very pleasant scene. And this guy, Paul, he's smart. You know, he had the anointing. He had the Holy Spirit. But he's sharp as a whip. And he stands up in front of them and he says, the reason I'm standing here today is because of my belief in the resurrection of the dead. And he knows what he's doing. Because half of this crowd is Pharisees, and half of this crowd is Sadducees. And the Pharisees believe in resurrection, and the Sadducees do not believe in resurrection. And immediately, as soon as he says this, they start going at each other. They're like, the Pharisees who believe in resurrection stand up and say, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He might have heard from an angel. They also believe in angels. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. And they start going at each other, and Paul's just standing back there like, you guys are too easy. That was too easy. And they almost forget about him. And so he, he gets off. But there are 40 guys who are determined. And they say, we have sworn a solemn vow. We will not eat or drink until we have killed Paul. And you know, as an as a Orthodox Jew, you do not break a vow. It's like you'd rather die than break a vow. So swearing you will not eat or drink until you kill somebody, you mean business. And they had a plan in place. They were going to ambush him. They knew the Roman customs. They knew he was going to be moved from point A to point B, and they were waiting. We're going to ambush him here, and we're going to kill Paul. And I can just imagine these guys waiting there. All right, he'll be here in five minutes. I can't wait to get this guy out of the way so we can go have lunch. I'm starving. It's been like, it's been like hours since I've eaten. And what happens? 300 Roman soldiers walk by with Paul in the middle because they'd gotten word. God was watching. He made sure that the Romans got word of what was happening, and they sent mounted troops, they sent armed troops, and they moved Paul with 300 men. And I'm just imagining these guys um, watching, and their stomachs growling as the last soldier slips out of view, and they're like, uh-oh, <laughs> what did we do? This is not going to be fun. I'm guessing they broke their vow. I'm guessing they didn't starve to death. Okay, so he ends up in prison, and the Roman official wants... A bribe, and Paul won't give him a bribe. So he ends up in jail for a couple of years. And he finally gets his trial. I'm just quickly going through what happens here. And, of course, again, Paul being Paul, does he give a traditional defense of himself? No. He stands up and starts get, trying to get the court saved. He tries to get the king saved. This is one of the Herods. There's like four Herods in, in the New Testament. So this Herod is Herod Agrippa II. Acts just calls him Agrippa. But he's the son of the of the Herod that tried to have Peter killed and did have James killed. You remember that Herod? And he's the great nephew of the Herod who mocked Jesus. And he's the great grandson of the Herod who 
um, tried to get the wise men to help him kill baby Jesus. So this is not a great family tree. This is not an illustrious family tree. But this Herod Agrippa had a chance to get saved there. And what did he do? It's sad. He interrupted Paul. He's like, Paul, do you really think we're going to become Christians right here in this court? <laughs> no. So that was his golden opportunity. But he's, he wasn't interested. So, wrapping this up, they put Paul on the ship for Rome. And they're going to sail in winter. And Paul's just a prisoner, mind you, but he stands up and says, this trip will end in disaster. You should listen to me. Let's wait until spring, which is when you traditionally sail in the Mediterranean. But they don't listen to Paul. He's just a prisoner. So they listen to the, says they listen to the helmsman who said, no, we're going to go. And, of course, Paul was right. There was a 14-day storm. They ended up having to throw all the cargo overboard, all the tackle, which is all the, the line and the ropes and everything. And at the end of 14 days, no eating. There's, they haven't even been able to eat. That's how bad the storm was. Finally, the wind stopped. And what do you think Paul did when the winds finally stopped? If you haven't read this story, what would you guess Paul would do based on what you've heard so far? I love it. He stands up in front of the whole ship and says, you should have listened to me. <laughs> Told you so. But he says, an angel appeared to me. We're all going to be fine. Just the ship will be lost. And then he says, we haven't eaten in 14 days, guys. And he just starts eating right in front of everybody. Now, you know, prisoners weren't supposed to just start eating. You know, you're supposed to, be, you're supposed to do what you're told. But everyone's just watching him, and he's just sitting there eating. He's like, let's eat. And it says, they all were like, yeah, this is a good idea. And they all ate. So I just love that he was the prisoner, but he basically takes over the entire ship, and he's the leader of the ship by the end of it. Uh, they, they do successfully land on Malta, and Paul gets bit by a viper. He just casually shakes it off into the fire, and they decide he must be a god because the viper is poisonous, but he's fine. And he starts a healing ministry on Malta, and he gets everyone on Malta who is sick, he gets them healed. And finally in Rome... Um, He's in prison for a couple years while he waits his trial, and Paul has the chance to write. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians while imprisoned. And that's where the book of Acts ends. And we know from history that he ended up getting released that time and did one more missionary trip. And the next time he was in prison, that was it. It was a very, very harsh imprisonment this time, and um, it was miserable. He was cold, and Nero ended up having him executed. But at this point, he's going to get released one more time. So that's the, uh, that's the takeaway from Acts. And I want to point out that through all this, Paul went through every kind of trial and persecution you can think of. He was flogged. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was stoned. And he always had joy and gratitude. He always had tons of energy for the kingdom. He had enthusiasm. I want to quote... 2 Corinthians 7.4, he said, I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. You would think he was having an easy life. But he had a hard life. He had every kind of difficulty. But it says, my joy knows no bounds. So the question I have is, how did he do it? How did he live like that where he had energy, enthusiasm, vigor for the kingdom and joy? Even through... I mean, I've just touched the surface of what Paul went through. He went through a lot more than what I've even talked about just now. So I want to go through some of the things I noticed in this letter he wrote to the Ephesians during this time and point out some of the things I noticed for how Paul ended up 
being so joyful and strong in God despite difficulties and hardships. And the first thing I noticed in Ephesians, I'm just going to go through this, I noticed that Paul's God, the God that Paul knew, that's our God, in Ephesians was totally in control. And that comforted Paul because it takes the pressure off. Paul was supposed to be the, the apostle to the Gentiles. All the other disciples got to just hang out in Jerusalem or um, they mostly got to focus on getting uh, the Jewish Christians discipled and saved. But God has sent Paul. He's like, okay, you get everybody else saved. <laughs> Imagine the pressure. You're the apostle to the Gentile. Okay, the whole rest of the world. And if, if that's on you, that's quite a burden to bear. But if God is in control, you can just relax. You can just enjoy the ride. And I think Paul felt the pressure was off of him because that would have been a burden that no one could bear. But you don't notice Paul stressing out. He did go bald, but that's okay. <laughs> but you see that he's relaxed, don't you? Okay, so the, actually the image that I had of Paul's God was like, like a nail. Like Paul's a nail and God is the hammer, and in a good way. God is driving home events. And I want to go through some of these verses in Ephesians. You'll be amazed. I'm sure you've all read Ephesians, but you'll be amazed when you notice how Paul writes about God being in control. He said in verse 1-3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. God chose you to be holy and blameless, so the pressure is off of you. He'll make you holy and blameless as you put your faith in Him. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. He predestined you to be adopted. You didn't choose to be adopted. He made it happen. In accordance with His pleasure and will, and He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will reach their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth under one head, even Christ. That's a God who's in control, my friends. Verse 11, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. This is a guy who's in jail when he writes this. Think about that. In order that we who are the first to hope in Christ may, might be to the praise of His glory. And chapter 2, verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. He is like, He's creating you still. He's, he's working mightily in your life. He's, you're still a creation and He's making you. You're His treasured... You're like His... Uh, you know, like one of those... Samurai sword creators who spend their whole life making one sword and it's their treasure, like their great work. You're that for God. It's, it's his uh, focus. And he even gave his, the blood of his son to make it happen. Think about that. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So even the good works that you've done for him, he was the one that moved you and empowered you to do that and he set it up in advance for you. Here's a God who's, who's moving behind the scenes completely in control. And it's amazing because then the pressure's off you. The pressure's off you. God's doing it. God's moving. And Paul wants you to know, you didn't choose God. God chose you. 
When you do a good work, God's the one that made it happen, and so on. I love that. And I love how that empowered Paul to relax through all this. You know, the two people in the Bible who talk the most about the sovereignty of God? Jesus and Paul. You know you're in good company when it's you and Jesus. Have you ever been in a car with somebody, and you're in the passenger seat, and they're driving, and you're just enjoying the ride. You're just like, we'll get there when we get there. But this person's driving, and they're like checking their mirror, and they're mad at other drivers, and they're switching lanes, and they're trying to get there faster. And you're just like, dude, your, your stress is spreading to me. I was relaxed. Just calm down. We'll get there. If your spouse is like that, don't, don't nod your head yes. Just, they might not like you. You're thinking it, though. Yeah. Well, I've never experienced that because I'm usually the one doing the driving, actually. But I've seen people relax while they're driving, so I know it can happen. And I think it's that way with the Lord. You know, he's the one behind the wheel, and we're the one who's just sitting there. He's driving, and we can just relax. He's the one getting us where we need to go. You don't need to feel like it's you stressed out, checking your mirror, and trying to get ahead. It's not going to work. You're just going to be spinning your, your wheels anyway, but he's getting you there. Think about Paul. He knows as he enters each city, he goes all around the world, and each city, he knows, based on this revelation, that there are certain people in that city who God has predestined to be saved. He talks about this. He said, he chose you, he predestined you. It's going to happen. And so when he goes and preaches the gospel, he knows that there's already people who are going to believe, not because of the amazingness of his sermon or his eloquence or anything like that. I and mean, sometimes it says in 1 Corinthians, they thought he wasn't even that great of a speaker. They said he, he writes forceful letters, but when he shows up, he's unimpressive. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But what happened? People got saved. Because God was the one, he, Paul knows this, God was the one who was moving. And when you know that, you don't need to worry. You know? So what is God moving you to do in your life with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers, to be a witness for Jesus, to pray for healing, to share Jesus? When he moves you in that way, and he's moving all of us in that way, the pressure is off of you because he's the one who's going to make it happen. Amen? Anybody? Okay. Two or three amens on that. You're thinking about it. You'll, you'll say amen on Tuesday afternoon. Let's look at the shipwreck. What happened because of the shipwreck? It was 14 days of misery. They couldn't even eat. Have you ever been on a, in a, on a ship when the seas are crazy? Marty has. It's not fun, is it? No. It's hard to keep your lunch down. We won't make Marty tell us about any of that stuff. But 14 days, and it said, Luke said, they gave up all hope. The whole ship is 280 people. They all gave up all hope. I'm guessing Paul didn't, but all the rest of them did. And what happened? They landed on Malta. Paul started preaching the gospel on Malta, and the island got saved. Do you know that Malta is still a Christian? It's a little, it's a little Mediterranean country today. It's still there. It's Malta, it's called Malta, and it's a Christian country today, about 2,000, or almost 2,000 years later, and it started on that day because of that shipwreck. Do you think that two weeks of discomfort is worth 2,000 years of people being Christian on an island? Do you think that those souls, those thousands of people who are going to heaven now as a result, is worth a couple weeks of discomfort? So while they had lost their hope, God knew, I'm going to use this to get this island saved. I love that. Do you think that Paul's imprisonment was worth us having Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians? I mean, if Paul had not been in prison, he might have been motivated to keep 
preaching the gospel, keep traveling around, all the stuff that he wanted to do. And God made him put the brakes on. And as a result, we have part of the Bible, which has been an encouragement and blessing to the Christian world. How many Christians are there today? Over two billion who read this book, who read these books, because of the imprisonment. God used it. It's amazing. So I say in your life, for every shipwreck, there's an island of Malta waiting. And for every years of imprisonment, there's Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. There's something good that God is bringing out of it. And Paul didn't know when he wrote Ephesians that 2,000 years later, 2 billion people would read this book. Do you think he even had any inkling of that? He's just writing a letter. But God knew. So we can relax. There's nothing wasted in the kingdom of God. There's nothing that's ultimately bad in the kingdom of God. Just like there's nothing that's ultimately good outside of the kingdom of God. It goes both ways. I'm going to make a quick confession here. I think... uh, I can tell this more freely because my dad's, my dad's with the kids, so we can just, don't tell him I brought this up, okay? So when I was a kid, I used to read in church. And one day, I was sitting in the front row, I think I was 12, and I was reading The Hobbit. And I was getting to this really exciting part. They were about to kill the dragon. Oh, spoiler alert. Sorry, the dragon dies. Didn't mean to spoil that for you. And I heard this authoritative male voice from the front of the church. David, I'm sorry, but... I can't have you reading right in the front row. It's so distracting when I'm trying to preach. My face went beet red. The whole church was looking at me. I had been sitting there with my arm over the pew like this, reading the book. I wasn't paying attention to anybody. I was 12. I didn't care. Grown-ups are irrelevant when you're 12. I said, oh, gosh. So I had to stop reading. I was so excited to find out what was happening, but I had to listen to his sermon then. And he got to a point where he suddenly couldn't remember what he was supposed to say. And he knew that it was from God and it was an important point in his sermon. And he did something he's never done. And in the whole, how long have I been listening to my dad preach? 40 years. (laughs) This is the one time he's ever done this. He said, I can't remember my point, but I'm going to wait until God gives it to me. And so we waited. It's like this. Isn't that awkward? We waited for like 20 seconds. Can you imagine? It was unbearable. And God gave him the point. Everybody clapped. It was a great point. Or they were clapping because he was finally talking again. I don't know. (laughs) But he told us afterwards, somebody came to him after the service and said that that silence was something that they needed because they were resisting the message and they were trying to ignore it. You know how you can kind of pretend like you didn't hear something and ignore it? And they said, God made me listen and think about it and drove the point home And I believe. And it was because of the pause. And I don't know if God made him forget. Kind of funny if he did. I told God, don't ever do that to me. He didn't say anything back. So kind of nervous. But God did use it one way or the other. And sometimes God doesn't cause the thing. Sometimes it just happens. But he allows it because he's going to turn it to the good. And that's kind of a trivial, silly, fun point. But there are serious things in your life where you're like, why did God allow it? But I'm telling you that there are shipwrecks that will turn into opportunities. And he is doing it. Amen. I'm going to amen my own point. (laughs) Nothing really goes wrong in the kingdom because God's in control. A second key to Paul's life. There's just two keys, so we're getting there. A second key to Paul's life that I see in Ephesians 
was his intense personal revelation of God's infinite love. Paul had an intense personal revelation of God's infinite love. Would you agree that someone who merely reads the manual for a Ferrari has a different experience than the one who drives the Ferrari? It's a different situation. One guy's just reading the manual, one person's driving it. So when we read the Bible and we find out, okay, God loves me. Okay, yeah, God loves me. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. But there's another, there's another way where you really feel the love and you really experience the love and you know the love and it's right here and it's affecting you. And that's very different than just reading about it. And what Paul had was the experience. And many people don't know this, but Paul writes in Galatians that after he had the Damascus experience, it took him three years before he went down to Jerusalem and met Peter and started his ministry. And during that time, he says part of it, he went off by himself into Arabia. This was a time of close connection with Jesus. Just like the other disciples, he spent three years in preparation with Jesus before he started his ministry. And I believe, this is just speculation, but during that time, he learned the love of Jesus. Because here was a man who was able to write this. I'm going to read from Ephesians. He said this, and this is his prayer for everyone else, because he wants people to experience what he experienced. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, chapter 3, verse 14, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. The only way to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God is to grasp how big His love is for you and to really grasp it. If we don't want that, what are we doing here? It's a beautiful day. If you don't even want the love of God, you might as well be out golfing. But we're not because we want the love. We want to know. We want to feel it. And that is where the power comes from. That's how Paul was able to bear everything that he bore and have joy. Because he was rooted in this depth of love, which once you feel it, you never go back to being how you were before. When I was 14, there was one night I remember, I was alone in my room, it was bedtime, and I was lying in my bed, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I was overwhelmed by a feeling of the love of God. And it washed over me. It was like a heat. And I just started laughing. There in my room by myself, anyone who saw me would have thought I was crazy. I was laughing. I couldn't stop. I, don't know what was, I did not know what was happening, but I knew that I didn't want it to stop. It was amazing. It was one of the best moments of my life. I still remember it. And I can tell you, if heaven is like that, we're in for a great eternity because God's presence is unbelievable. I just laughed and laughed and I didn't want, unfortunately I went to sleep <laughs> like five minutes later, but I woke up and I was still, I had this high. And this is not a confession of teenage drug use here. This was just the Holy Spirit. And I never forgot it. And all my life since then, whenever I read the Bible and pray and worship, I'm trying to get back to that place of closeness with him. And he takes me there. He'll the first one was a freebie. He just gave, I think he wanted to give me a taste and say, this is what you really should be going for. And I wish that everybody, I hope that you've experienced that. I, if you haven't, I want you to experience it because it changes you. 
and you realize what's really going on here. What's really going on here is we're loved by a good God. And that's where the energy comes from, and that's where the uh, enthusiasm. You know, I never went through what some people go through in their early 20s. They go off to college, and they get a professor who's an atheist, and they, they doubt their parents' faith. Because I had that experience when I was 14. You know, I know he's real. And if everyone has experienced that, there would be no atheists in the world. Because you know that happened. I think knowledge of the love of God is power to change the world and to bring heaven to earth. Paul writes in Ephesians that we're caught up with Christ into the heavenly realms. It's one of those verses where you wonder, you want to talk more about it. Like, go on, tell me, what are you talking about? What do you mean I'm caught up with Christ in the heavenly realms? But I think that part of that is your spirit is walking and dancing and uh, ministering together with Christ and you're experiencing that love in the heavenly realms, but on earth your body and your mind are still here and that allows you to bring heaven to earth. And that's what allowed Paul and Jesus to bring heaven to earth was that their spirit was uh, ministering to and being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And it was the love that really changes. It changed Paul and it changes all of us. So Paul said, I, he didn't say, I pray that they will know this love with mere head knowledge. He said, I, want, I pray that they will know the love that surpasses knowledge. This is a supernatural knowing. It's God revealing it to you in ways that you could never get there on your own. And it's humbling, it's humbling to need him to tell you. But only God can really reveal this. And so, since part of Christian life is just testifying, I'm just testifying that the love of God that I've experienced in my life is wonderful, and it's life-changing, and we all need it. So what I just want to, I'm going to close with a prayer. I'm going to close with the impartation that what I have experienced is going to go to you. And I know that you've experienced, I'm not trying to say I'm the only one. But yeah, my dad said to have everybody stand up when we do this. So if you would stand up and be ready to receive. Be ready to receive. So, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, the same manifestation of love that you gave me when I was 14 and that you've given me since then, I pray for an impartation to each heart here tonight, this morning. Each heart here this morning. From you, a knowledge that surpasses knowledge. Only you can pass that on to them, Lord. You love them so much and they need to know. Thank you, Jesus. Breakthrough. Breakthrough. Breakthrough for you. Breakthrough for you watching. Breakthrough for you in this room to know the love that surpasses understanding. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. I declare you will walk in that love. You will have joy in that love no matter what's going on in your life. And it will lead to victory. Yes, you are more than conquerors as you walk in this love. Thank you, Jesus. I want you to say this prophetically. Those of you who are doubting right now, you're thinking about the hardships. So everyone say this with, uh, with me for the sake of those who are doubting. We're just going to declare this with faith because this is going to be breakthrough. We're going to say, I know I'm loved. Right now. I know I'm loved. Thank you. Amen. Amen.
If you receive something today, clap with like you mean it right now. That's really beautiful. That's so good, man. And we, wanna, we want to always uh, recognize God wants to do more of what he's doing. He has given more, and there's been several baptisms in the Holy Spirit. So, Marty, will you get some people to help? Maybe Pastor uh, Steve Philo will come up and, and over on this side. Anyone that wants to help uh, pray for people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit if that, can, that can and does and will in this experience include speaking and praying in tongues. Come on up over here. Marty will and, and team will minister, and you will receive today because there's momentum happening. It's awesome. Even happening out on the street. Three people that uh, out on the street total strangers, received a total powerful outpouring of the Spirit with the, with the prayer language right in front of God and everybody out in the street. So come up here. Thanks a lot. We love you guys. Hope you have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time. God bless you.